The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Ecclesia, I hope um, that already you can appreciate the beauty that we have uh, absorbed together. Just wonderful musicians and a beautiful room. Does anybody else get captured from time to time by the glass mosaic behind us? Just the beauty that is there. And uh, there's a reason that as Christians we believe that Sunday is the first day of the week. That, That we're gathering in a way that we start our journey for the week together and that we soak in some beauty, we soak in some truth. Um, Both of our services are a little different um, at the nine and the 11. The nine is packed with people that have already been up for hours because their kids are so little. Um, They got here at 8.30 because they were ready to go. And during the service, I just drifted over the playground. and, And I heard one of the kids saying to the other kids, I love going to church, right? And, uh, For a pastor, it's about all you need. I was like, I could go home now. That's all I needed. But my hope is that that this hour will be one of refreshing for you. It'll be a a time of peace that you could exhale some problems, that you can breathe in God's comfort and peace. And so I'm just going to pray that over you, and then I have a few things I'd love to share with you that I hope will be a blessing. Lord God, I thank you for my brothers and sisters. I thank you for kids. Thank you for pregnant women reminding us of new life and birth. And we pray today, God, that there would be a sense of rebirth even in our own hearts. In places of pain and struggle, that you would meet us there. For those of us that have been ill, maybe we're not sleeping because of physical ailments or maybe other problems, that you would meet us in that place. We ask, God, that through your spirit and the kind words of brothers and sisters that have gathered together today, that we would find encouragement and hope and direction. We pray all of this together, and we pray it in your name. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Well, I was reminded last week um, when I was preaching downtown, we have, one of the things I love about Ecclesia is we have people from all across the globe, and we had some, a group of Ecclesians that are from South Africa that were especially happy, and they came and told me, we're really happy because we won the world championship in rugby. I don't know much about rugby, but I was glad that some Ecclesians were experiencing a world championship, and so... Um, <laughs> It was a smaller group, but at least some of them know what it tastes like. Uh, We have an arrangement for the entire month. We have added Prozac to the communion wine, and um, it's just going to get us through. We're just, we're going to get through, and uh, one of the reasons I've told you, we we love baseball. I love baseball because it brings people together. It's a place that we, it's brought our city together. Uh, It's a place that we get to sit and visit and be with one another. Uh, We have been in a series... uh, over the fall that I I just, if I'm being really honest with you, it's maybe one of my favorites I've ever gotten to preach and share with you. Uh, In part because we're looking at some really important people in the history of the church, but not just in the history of the whole church, also people that have been really important and influential in the life of our church. And today I get to introduce you to a friend. I I never got to meet him. Uh, He, um, 
I wish I, wish I would have made arrangements while he was still living to, to meet him. But I can tell you without a shadow of a doubt that our church would not exist apart from his, uh, his teachings. Um, I don't mean this at all in a funny way when I tell you that I, I was 14 um, when I came to realize that I had a sense, I don't know if I would use the word calling then, uh, but that my mission in life was that I would um, end up being a pastor. I, I, I'm in no way trying to be funny, I just tell you, that was the most depressing idea to me that I could possibly imagine at 14. Um, because I had watched my dad and my grandfather work as pastors, and there was so much of about it that just it was not appealing to me in any in any way, um, in part because of the, the churches that I grew up in. Um, I'd, I'd say they were very traditional, um, often even legalistic. Um, you know, they, they tell a joke about Baptists, right? Um, never take one Baptist fishing because he'll drink all your beer. You got to bring two because they don't drink in front of each other. And, um, and it's only funny because it's true. And, and I grew up around people that were hiding bottles in their closet. And when you start hiding things, and you're, you just keep hiding. And there was a lot you just kept hidden. And there was a lot that felt really artificial. And, and the main way to succeed, in my understanding and experience of the job, was that what you really wanted were to rack up a number of people that converted, that made a decision for Christ. And often it was assumed the best way to make a decision for Christ was to be motivated by fear. And so you would try to scare people to Jesus. And what I learned from just observing was that when people were scared into faith, that the faith didn't blossom, that it really didn't take off. And those people didn't often stay in the faith. And so I looked at so many parts of this job, the way uh, that pastors were treated, the, the sense of well, you got to be a part of a mission, but the missionaries would kind of come to you and they'd report with really boring slides. Anybody remember those that would? And and there was, this, it didn't, there was nothing adventurous or beautiful about it, and I thought my life was supposed to be beautiful and adventurous. And when I was 20, I was given a book by a professor and mentor while I was at Baylor. Uh, actually, two books that came together, both by Leslie Newbegin. Uh, a book called Foolishness to the Greeks and The Gospel in a Pluralist Society. And I, and I read those books, and it offered for me for the first time an invitation that maybe the church could be different. And for the first time, I felt this sense of promise that it it might actually be an amazing thing to be a pastor and lead a congregation. And this is what you need to know about Leslie Newbegin. It's maybe a name you haven't heard or thought of. This is what Leslie Newbegin looked like. Um, this was when he was young and particularly handsome, I think, and uh, had a lot of energy and, uh, and ideas. He was born in Birmingham, England in the early 1900s. He spent most of his life in India um, in relative obscurity to the rest of the world. Um, but what you ought to know about Newbegin is that he was serving specifically as a missionary in India in a day when uh, Western missions were exactly that. They were a Christian colonization. It, it was Christian uh, people inviting other nations in Africa, Latin America, India, Asia to convert to be a Western European Christian. Because the understanding was, even though Jesus came from the Middle East, I don't know if you've heard that before, even though Jesus came from the Middle East, the only way we could imagine to be a Christian was to be Western European. And so in India, we were starting churches and we thought they had to have pipe organs and choir robes and they had to behave and look like Western European Christians. Newbegin went to India and he believed that you could start churches that were distinctly Indian. 
in their culture, in the way they lived. This was a brand new idea. And Newbegin planted thriving churches. And in fact, what he did is he quickly gave over power. He, he started these churches, and then he became the servant of the churches, not the authority figure. In fact, he was surprised when they had the power and they chose instead to then elect him as bishop. And then when he was elected as the bishop over the churches, he even in that point behaved in a different way than you would imagine bishops would behave. Bishops were supposed to be the boss. They were supposed to have the power. The people of the churches all across India would travel to meet with the bishop to make a plan. You know what, in, uh, what uh, Newbegin did in India? He wouldn't allow them to travel to his office. In a day that transporta transportation is still hard in India, but in that day, it was really difficult, and he covered tens of thousands of miles traveling to the churches to meet them on, on foot and bicycle. And so what you ought to know about Newbegin is that Newbegin spent this thriving time in India, but then he came back to uh, his homeland uh, in the United Kingdom, and he came back to churches that had become dead. They used to be thriving churches. And what he realized was that churches in the United States and in Europe were going to need to begin to do the same thing he did in India, actually engage people where they are in the culture and invite them to follow Jesus in a unique way that might not look historically European Christian. And so for the first time, I was handed these books by a man that I never met, and they radically changed my life. They invited me to envision the church in a new way. Newbegin says it this way. He says, how can this strange story of God made flesh, of a crucified savior, of resurrection and new creation become credible for those whose entire mental training has conditioned them to believe that the real world is the world which can be satisfactorily explained and managed without the hypothesis of God. He said, we live in a Western modern world where reason is king. That's all people want. They want to reason things out. And he said, I know of only one clue to the answering of that question. Only one hermeneutic of the gospel a congregation which believes it. You see, Newbegin believed that if a group of people gathered together and they truly believed the gospel, they would live in such an astounding way that it would radically transform the world. Because the gospel means what? Good news, right? And if it's good news, it's gotta be good news for everyone. It means no one's left out, whoever you are, Rich, poor, gay, straight, from Africa, from Asia, you name it, wherever you're from, whoever, it can't be bad news for you. And if it sounds like bad news, it's probably not the gospel. It's not the good news. And so what we're called to do, Newbegin says, if we'll create these communities of people that really believe the good news of Jesus, and they'll share that good news, that community, that congregation will be such a force in the world that it's hard to reckon with. He puts it another way. He says, the question which has to be put to every local congregation is the question of whether it's a credible sign of God's reign and justice and mercy over the whole of life. Whether it's an open fellowship whose concerns are as wide as the concerns of humanity, whether it cares for its neighbors in a way which reflects and springs out of God's care for them, whether its common life is recognizable as a foretaste to the blessing which God intends for the whole human family. What's he saying? He's saying that, that Christianity, the good news of the gospel, is not just for this small religious part of our life, it's for the whole of life. And it leads us to care for the whole of people and for all people. So I gotta tell you, Ecclesia, I was in my early 20s, I read these books by Leslie Newbegin, and then started to read the Bible 
in light of some of these teachings, and I was astounded by what I found in the Bible. I'll never forget a day that I opened the Bible to Luke chapter 5, and that's the passage I'm going to share with you today. And the passage astounded me for a couple of reasons. In Luke 5, part of what we find, it starts with a fishing story, and remind me to come back to the fishing story if I forget. And then Jesus, after he's gone fishing with his new disciples, he, he starts teaching in a house, and because he's Jesus and people are so drawn to his teaching, the house is filled, it's packed. And then there were these people that loved their friend so much, their friend was paralyzed, that they had to figure out a way to get their friend to Jesus. And, and they vandalized the building. They cut a hole in the roof to drop the guy in, right? This is the day before we, like they didn't have a belaying system. Like they couldn't go to REI and get, who knows how they rigged it up, but they, they cut a hole in. They dropped the guy in right in front of Jesus and Jesus heals him. Can you imagine being in that room? Like you, you see this guy, he's healed, paralyzed from birth. And in Luke 5, it tells us that people start to respond to this. He said right in front of their eyes, the man stood up and he picked up his bed and he left to go home, full of praises for God. Everyone was stunned. They couldn't help but feel awestruck. And they praised God too. They said, we've seen extraordinary things today. Anybody come to church on a week that something's good has happened to you? Anybody have anything good happen to them this week? Anybody? Just anybody get a raise or... Your kids actually said, I like you, or hello to you, or so just any, like, when you come and something good is happening in your life, you start to worship God, and you're like, wow, oh, it's such an expression of joy, right? We get to, can you imagine, you've witnessed Jesus, a man drops from the roof, Jesus heals him, you realize you were present, at some point you realize, like, if there's ever a Bible, I'm pretty sure this story's going to be in it, and I'm a part of it, this is unbelievable, Right? So what does Jesus do after he has this unbelievable religious, he's a major religious leader now. What's he, he's probably gonna do something really religious, right? Well, it tells us, it says sometime later, Jesus walked along the street and he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting in his tax office. Now already, for you, this may not mean much, but you need to know this sentence is packed with meaning. So you got a, got a guy named Levi, his name tells us who he is, right? What's, what should his job be? Should be a priest. He's from the tribe of Levi. But he's not doing priestly duties. He's working as a tax collector. Now, for you and me, we hear that, and we probably most of us at least begrudge the IRS a little bit, right? Anybody else at least have a, like they'll take your money. Sometimes they take it without asking. They'll just pull it out of your account because they want to, right? But this is totally different than our understanding of people collecting taxes. They would collect an amount at their own discretion, and they worked for an occupying government. So for us, in our context, it's hard to imagine, but if you were a kid in the 80s like me, the most significant adrenaline-inducing movie of that time was this movie called Red Dawn, right? You could watch it over and over again. Anybody remember and, and the Russians are taking over, and it's only a few football players with deer rifles that managed to fight them off, right? But imagine, like, we're taken over by the Russians, and then your cousin that used to be a priest, a pastor, is now working for the Russians to take as much money from you as you want. How you feel about that guy? Not very good. So already, like, we're just, this is loaded with meaning. Jesus, Jesus meets this guy. He should be working as a priest. Instead, he's taking money for the occupying government as much as he wants. This is a bad guy. 
So what happens? What's Jesus say to him? Follow me. Hey, Levi, follow me. And Levi did. He got up from his desk. He left everything, just as the fisherman had. And he followed Jesus. And shortly after this, Levi invited his many friends and associates, including many tax collectors, to his home for a large feast in Jesus' honor. And everyone sat at the table. Say it with me. See, Jesus was turning the world upside down. In the church I grew up in, there were two kinds of people. There were good people and there were bad people. And what you learn pretty quickly is that Church was for the good people. I got to lead my friend in fourth grade to faith, and he started coming to church for a few months, but it didn't take long for him to figure out he didn't belong there. He lived in a trailer home. His parents used different language than other people. His dad had a stack of Playboys sitting in the house, and it was very clear to him, like, church was for the good people, and you're not one of them. I grew up loving the Astros in part because I grew up going to the Astrodome. Anybody remember going to the Astrodome in the early days? And we used to go as our family and we'd sit in the outfield, right? There were two reasons at the dome to sit in the outfield because it was 50 cents for adults and 25 cents for kids, I think, at that point, right? And you were either sitting there because you were a family that didn't have a lot of money or because you had other priorities and you were gonna spend your money on beer, right? Those were the two reasons to sit in the outfield. And so you had families like us, and you had people that were tanked by the fourth inning, right? Just, <laughs> and it was an interesting combination of people. And I remember very clearly hearing from people in the church that I went to that we, we were the good people and they were the bad people, right? And what do you do with the bad people? Stay away from them. What's Jesus do? Not that. So the religious people, just like they would have been and that day, right, if I'd have gone over there and sat in the middle of the people pouring beer all over each other, people would have said, what in the world is he doing over there with those people? The Pharisees and their associates, the religious scholars, they got the attention of some of Jesus' disciples. And the Pharisees came and they started talking in low voices. They were trying to whisper. They didn't want Jesus to hear. They just didn't realize that he was Jesus. So he could hear everything. So they're asking, what's wrong with you? Why are you eating and drinking with tax collectors and other immoral people? You're not supposed to be with those people. You're a religious leader. What are you doing? But Jesus overheard. And he responds. And I got to tell you, Ecclesia, I remember reading this after reading Leslie Newbegin and thinking, well, if, you, if you'll hear this passage today, any misunderstanding you have about the church will be totally turned upside down. This is what Jesus said. He said, healthy people don't need a doctor, but sick people do. I haven't come for the pure and the upstanding. I've come to call notorious sinners to rethink their lives and turn to God. I remember reading this and I thought, I wonder if anybody at my church has ever read this. Because my understanding of the church was it was for the pure and the upstanding. I got to tell you, Ecclesia, one of the reasons I love you is that most of you would get kicked out of the church I grew up in. You're way too rough around the edges. And all of a sudden I started, oh wait, I'm a notorious sinner. You're a notorious sinner. Jesus came for notorious sinners. 
Those were the people he was drawn to. And being pure and upstanding was really just an illusion. The Pharisees said, well, Jesus, then explain to us why you and your disciples are so commonly found partying like this when our disciples and even the disciples of John are known for fasting rather than feasting and for saying prayers rather than drinking wine. They're saying, we know how religious people are supposed to behave, and Jesus, you're, you don't look like one of them, and neither do your disciples. So Jesus explains. He said, well, imagine this. Imagine there's a wedding going on. Is that the time to tell the guests to ignore the bridegroom and fast? See, in our culture, we don't do it quite as well. And Jesus, you go to a wedding. I've been to a few weddings of people here. I like your wedding. It's a party. It ought to be. He's saying, would you go to a wedding and act like it's a funeral? No. He says, the groom's here. Sure, there's a time for fasting when the bridegroom has been taken away. Look, nobody tears up a new garment to make a patch for an old garment. If he did, the new patch would shrink up and rip the old, and the old garment would be worse off than before. If you don't so much, maybe you didn't get it. But he says, maybe, maybe you don't get it that way. Let me explain it another way. If you, maybe you know wine. He said, and nobody takes freshly squeezed juice and puts it into old, stiff wineskins. The fresh wine would make the old skins burst open, and, and both the wine and the wineskins would be ruined. New, Jesus says, demands new. New wine for new wine skids. Anyway, those who've never tasted the new wine won't know what they're missing. They'll always say the old wine is good enough for me. Now, I could teach on this passage for you for about six weeks, but part of what I hope you hear is that Jesus is saying, when I'm in the world, when I'm active in the world, I'm gonna be birthing new things. Things are gonna change. There's gonna be new expressions of what faith looks like, and God will surprise you He'll constantly astound you and surprise you. I love that earlier in this passage, just before the healing, Jesus took the disciples fishing, right? Hopefully, if you're a fisherman, like I got a few fishing stories. All mine really suck compared to Jesus' fishing stories, right? Doesn't matter how big the fish is you caught, it doesn't sound impressive compared to Jesus filling the nets, right? And so, Jesus did this a couple times. Peter was there and Peter saw it happen. In that moment, Peter realized, this is not a teacher, this is not a rabbi. This man controls nature. He's the one that created it. And and you remember what Peter said to Jesus? He turned to him in Luke five and he said, you should get away from me. Peter said, Jesus, I'm a very sinful man. You you shouldn't be around me. Why? Because his understanding was, if you're religious, if you're God, if that's, you gotta stay away from the bad people. So Peter's saying, my understanding of it says, you should get away from me. You just did something I can't fathom. And I gotta tell you, Ecclesia, it tells you everything you need to know about the church to see Jesus' response. Does Jesus pull away from Peter and go, yeah, you know what, right, Peter, you're, you're right, you're a mess. Does he back away from Peter? He leans in with Peter. He gives him a new name and he tells him, you're the rock and it's on you, I'm gonna build the church. The church is built on a notorious center to make a family for other notorious centers. 
Newbegin explains it this way. He says, a church that exists only for itself and its own enlargement is a witness against the gospel. He said, I'm going to start a church that's going to be based on loving and caring for notorious sinners, and then those notorious sinners are going to love other notorious sinners. We are the only family institution, organization, community, whatever you want to call the church. We're the only one that exists for the sole purpose of the people outside of this room. You, you go to Rotary, you become a Toastmaster, you join a country club, it's for you. The reality is we come here, and the strange part is people will come to church and think it's for them to be fulfilled, but if you come just looking to be self-actualized, it won't actually work for you. The strange part of the way that God made it is that when we come and then we focus on others, then we find we're at our best and we actually do reach what God has for us, but only because we're gathering together to do for others what we couldn't do on our own. And together, when he establishes the church, it becomes beautiful. Newbegin helped me understand that to be a pastor and lead a church could be a beautiful thing. And so today, I'm, I'm gonna share with you one, two, three, four, five things uh, that I learned from Newbegin. Now, the hard part is, I think I had 42 when I started going through the list. And so I'm thinking about doing a little podcast where I deal with the other things that are, so if you think you would actually listen to it after the sermon, you can tell me. If not, I'm just gonna sit my kids down and share it with them so it's not wasted. But if you think you would listen to it, then I may do that. Five things I learned from Newbegin. Let me share those with you, and then I'm gonna give you three ways that we can respond. First, I learned from Newbegin that we do not live in fear of our culture, that the world's not a place that we need to be afraid of. Newbegin explained it this way. He said, the church is not meant to call men and women out of the world into a safe religious enclave, but to call them out in order to send them back as agents of God's kingship. He says, we're actually gathered here. The reason we even gather on a Sunday is so we can be refreshed, we can be encouraged, we can be taught, we can find hope, and then we carry that hope back out in the world in which we live. I grew up in a church that was afraid of the rest of the world. We thought the church existed so that we could avoid the bad people. And if we got close to them, they might harm us. If you come at some point to our open door gathering where we tell you more about who we are at, at Ecclesia, I, I do some teaching from the book of Daniel. And in that, explain to you that Daniel and his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or if you have little kids and watch Veggie Tales, Rakshak and Benny, and they have funny veggie hair, and, um, and a slightly different story. But the story is they leave the context of Israel where everybody worshiped the same God, and they're dropped into Babylon in the place that they worshiped many gods, and they have to figure out how do we live as people of faith in that world? It's a lot like living in Houston in 2019. In the 1950s, if you prayed at a football game down the road in Houston, everybody knew which God you were praying to, right? In Houston today, in the most diverse city in the United States, the question is, which God will we pray to? And there are some that believe, well, now it's too dangerous. You can't be a Christian. No, it's actually, Christianity was made to exist in that culture because we are missionaries in the place that we're called to. We're called to bring God's love and hospitable, beautiful ways to that world. And so we thrive in that place. Newbegin put it this way, and it's a perfect example, right, to be preaching this to you just after Halloween, right? I grew up in a church that like Halloween, right? Don't, I hope that you participated in Halloween last week. I hope that you shared candy. Christians should give the best candy. You should give whole Snickers bars. That's what you should do, right? 
and, and meet your neighbors. Can you imagine living in a world where we said, you know what, on the night that all the neighbors go out and meet themselves, don't participate in that. Like, no, 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 meet your neighbors, know your neighbors, live in this world. You don't have to be afraid that somebody's gonna come dressed up as a ghost or a goblin. You'll be okay, right? Newbegin was the one that taught me that I could truly believe what the scriptures say, that greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world, that I don't have to be afraid to live in the world. Newbegin says it this way, he says though, the choice for the church is this, and this is what you gotta know, in every age will always be, will our identity be shaped by scripture or by culture, by the biblical story or the cultural story. So hear and understand, just because we live in the culture doesn't mean we buy everything the culture's selling. It just means that we can live in the culture in a faithful way. And we've gotta figure that out together. Now part of what I'll tell you, if you come to Open Door and I teach it fully for you, is that we won't do that perfectly. Nobody does. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah did their best to follow the scriptures. They, there was food that scripture said not to eat. They wouldn't eat it. They wouldn't bow to idols that represented the nations. They did, but Daniel took another name, right? He took the name Belteshazzar, which is a tribute to the pagan god Marduk. Like, if, if I live in Pakistan and people want to rename me, you know, uh, with a Muslim. I'm not gonna take the Muslim name. That's not my, I think it was a mistake. I don't think he should have. But you know what? I'm encouraged that he wasn't perfect, just like I'm not perfect and you're not perfect. And we won't live perfectly in the world. But we will live, hopefully, the best we can if scripture is our guide. We let scripture guide us. N not the culture guide us. Scripture guide us as we live in the culture. That's what I learned from Newbegin, and it was a beautiful gift. I got four more, and I got to move a lot faster because I took too long on that one. Second one, this one you need to know, that the gospel leads to a beautiful life. If, if you believe it's good news, it, the, I, I live out the gospel. I'm a Christian not just because I believe it's true, and we can go through some time, and I'll tell you why I think the evidence points to the reality that Jesus is exactly who he says he is. I think the eyewitnesses, the way that Christianity flourished and has grown, I think historically God's revealed himself in some ways that I can go, I believe in my head that it's true. But I gotta tell you, I'm a Christian not just because of that. I'm a Christian because I have seen an experience that living out the good news is the best kind of life you can live. If you live your life in such a way that you reflect the selflessness and generosity that Jesus has called us to, it's a beautiful thing. This is what Newbegin says. He says, live in the kingdom of God in such a way that it provokes questions for which the gospel is the answer. He says, if you live out your life, I got, I'm going to tell you more at the end of the sermon about the trip that I took to the Venezuela border this week. We had an unbelievable experience. Uh, we... We get to go, it was, I'll tell you this and you'll hear it again in the sermon in a couple of weeks, but um, one of the things I love about being a Christian is getting to live into the adventure of who God calls us to serve. We had an ecclesian that said, you know what, we were bringing supplies and he said, you ought to be able to bring more supplies. I'll help acquire a plane and it'll get us there. And so we said, great, and we got a plane. And then I said to you last week, many of you gathered, you overflowed us with things here in downtown with all the supplies we needed. We're just overflowing with it. He said, let's get it there. We said, great. We said, let's get a pilot. Great. And then the pilots would sign up. They'd say, I'm in. I'll do the job. You're paying me. It sounds awesome. And then they'd look up where we're going. Right? And apparently some people are, care about when the State Department says it's a level four do not travel. There are certain people that take that seriously. I don't know. Um, I look at it and I go, well, it seems like that's the places God wants us to go, right? That's, I'm a pastor. That's how I, pilots apparently don't look at it the same way that I do, right? 
And so all our pilots are backing out. All of them are backing out. And I'm at dinner with a friend and I just pray. I go, our, our pilot was with us for three days. He had time to look it up. He did all of it. He waited till the last day and then he backed out. And so I said, we're at dinner. I just said, we got to pray for a pilot. I made a post on social media and Ecclesia and shared it. And after we prayed for a pilot over the meal, 30 seconds later, I get a text message. This pilot might be able to do it. So I call him and I'm ready to lay on anything I can to convince him, right? First, I find out he's a Christian and I'm ready to use all the Christian guilt in the world, <laughs> right? I'm like ready to lay it on. I tell him, hey, listen, are you available these days? Yeah, I'm available these days. You're a Christian, you wanna, you wanna serve God? Yeah, yeah, I wanna serve God. I said, well, the, you know, the big problem is this, we're flying into CUC, to Cucuta. And most people don't even know who Cucuta is, where it is, what it is. He said, so people are backing out, you know, because they don't want to go to Kukuta. He says, no problem. My wife's hometown is Kukuta. I'm in. I'm your pilot, right? Now, I could talk to a thousand pilots. They don't know where Kukuta is or that exists. How do you think I connect with the one pilot certified with the rating for the one plane? How do you think that happens? That's God, Right? And I got to tell you, the reason you ought to be a Christian, the reason you ought to live that life is because when God orchestrates your steps, it's going to be better than if you're planning your steps. That other life's a boring life. I want to live that life. And Newbegin reminded me, if you'll live in the kingdom in that kind of way, everybody will be asking questions, right? It doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not. I tell people that story and I will tell that story. Quite often from time to time, people will go, huh, Wow. That's, that's different than my life. Yeah. Yeah, you ought, to, you ought to consider what it looks like to really follow Jesus. Thirdly, and I said I was going to speed up and I didn't. Thirdly, <laughs> this is what I learned from Newbegin, that actions are greater than beliefs. You get a bunch of Christians together and you know what they do most of the time? They start asking each other, what do you believe? What do you believe? I believe this. You believe, oh, well, then here we're over here and you're over here. And then sometimes we get in this weird competition where we start going, well, my beliefs are better than your beliefs. And we'll go, hey, what do you believe about the Bible? I believe it's inerrant. Oh, I believe it's inherently infallible. I think it's inherently fallible, super duper perfect. We just go on and on. Like, I'm going to tell you more. And and this is what I learned from Newbegin. It doesn't matter what you believe. What are you going to do? Newbegin says it this way. He says, it's less important to ask a Christian what he or she believes about the Bible than it is to inquire what he or she does with it. You could have a PhD in theology and do nothing with it. Or you could have the faith of a child and do everything with it. And Newbegin helped me understand it'd be so much better, even if you just had a little faith and a little belief, but you did something about it. Ecclesia, I got to tell you, one of the reasons I love you as a church is that you've decided together, we've decided together we're going to be doers. I'm a believer, but I'd like to throw out some of that language where people go, are you a believer? Yeah, I'm a believer. Are you? I don't, I, it doesn't matter to me if you believe. What do, do, what do you do with your belief? And together, we get to do beautiful things. I'm finally speeding up. Number four, I learned from Newbegin that we're called to be the kingdom of justice. Newbegin says it this way. He says, the living God is a God of justice and mercy, and he will be satisfied with nothing less than a people in whom his justice and mercy are alive. One of the reasons you want to be a part of a church is because in a church, we show mercy and forgiveness. There is nothing more powerful than forgiveness. I'm telling you, this week at Ecclesia, we had the pastor of the AME Church in Charleston, one of the survivors, Polly, that was in the room, when the shooter was there, the pastor lost his wife. 
they demonstrated a kind of forgiveness blows my mind. It's so beautiful. He says, we want to be a part of a community that lives in justice. When we see injustice, when we say, hey, that's wrong, we move together to fix it, to right it. That's the people we're made to be, and I'm grateful Newbigin taught me that. Lastly, and then we'll, uh, I'll give you some things we could do. I learned from Newbigin that mission is core identity. You don't get to be a Christian who's not on mission. The two go together. It's just who we are, what we do. Through the years at Ecclesia, we've had people... Um, call because they're like, your church does a lot, but I've looked at your staff and you don't even have a missions pastor. Like you need a missions pastor. And so they'll call, I'm applying for the missions pastor job. And I have to tell them every pastor at Ecclesia is a missions pastor. Every one of us. Talk to Manuel downtown who leads the homeless ministry. He's a missions pastor. Talk to Mike who serves families and all over. Talk to Jim and Wayne and they're serving all in Houston and all across the globe because we're all on mission. And if we weren't, it'd be pretty boring. But this part of it is so beautiful. Newbigin puts it this way, and I want to tell you, I think this is one of the best quotes you'll ever hear in your life. So if you got a phone, you want to take a photo of it, um, hear it first. I'll leave it up long enough so that you can. This is what he says. He says, mission begins with a kind of explosion of joy. It's not a duty. It's not something you task a committee to do. It begins with an explosion of joy because the news that the rejected and crucified Jesus is alive is something that cannot possibly be suppressed. It must be told. Who could be silent about such a fact? He says the mission of the church in the pages of the New Testament is like the fallout from a vast explosion, a radioactive fallout, which is not lethal but life-giving. Ecclesia, that's what I believe. I'm telling you, I wish I had said it as well as he said it. He says it so beautifully. I believe that if we live out real Christianity, it'll be like nuclear fallout. It'll just spread. Now, I got to tell you, if you're trying to spread a legalistic religion, it won't work. It won't spread. doesn't sound like good news. Hey, you want to come be a part of a club where we all act like we don't drink and we have a thing in the brown bag in the closet? Uh, no, thanks. Really, I'd prefer not to. You want to be a part of a family that learns how to forgive and share and serve and celebrate and have great joy in the world? Yeah, I'd, I'd love that. I would love that. I'd love to be a part of that family. That just spreads because it's beautiful. So in light of that um, and the 34 other things I'll share with you on a podcast if you care to listen, um, in light of what Newbegin has taught me and if you didn't know, many of you came in, people have asked me, how do you spell Newbigin? Again, I should just tell you now, N-E-W-B-I-G-I-N. And if you really want to read some of Newbigin's books, you could start with a book that was written about his work in the world that's really short by a guy named David Bosch. It's called Believing in the Future. He's a missiologist that explains Newbigin in a really helpful way for almost everybody. But in light of that, whether you knew you were influenced by Newbigin or not, if you were influenced at all by Ecclesia, you were influenced by Newbigin, what do we do with these teachings? What should we do now? Let me give you a, a few things, three to be specific. Here's the first. Engage the whole culture with the gospel. See, I, I grew up with this understanding of religion that Christianity was for the religious part of our lives and that we also needed to stay away from the rest of the world because it would mess us up. What Newbegin helped me understand is that the gospel was meant to be the seed that flourishes in all of life. And so in, in the church I grew up in, you, you had good music and bad music. You had good films and bad films, right? Um, you, you had good books and bad books. 
And we were taught this garbage in, garbage out, right? Your brain's a sponge and it will simply absorb what you see in here. What do you think? Do you think that's true? Or do you, do you think you could read a book? Can you imagine this? You could read a book and disagree with it? Wouldn't that be a good idea? Like if you agree with every book that you read, you're, you're probably not learning anything, right? And what we have to do, especially I'm talking to parents, especially with our kids, we have to teach them to be able to read things, view things, experience things, watch films and discern what's true and what's not true. It's like a basic life skill and it's super important for a Christian. If your brain's a sponge and you just absorb every book, every film, um, all music, right? If you just absorb the music comes in, can you imagine? You listen to Taylor Swift and you will think breakups are supposed to be ugly. Your breakups will be awful, right? She sings it beautifully, but that's not how you want to live. You don't just absorb it and think that it's truth. So we want to engage the whole of life with the good news of the gospel. I got so much more to say about that, but just let me um, invite you to consider what that looks like. Secondly, I want to invite you in light of New Begins teaching to reimagine your participation in the church. If you begin to imagine that being a part of the church is the most amazing adventure, that we get to do things together that seem impossible. I got to tell you, flying into Cucutan, a place that's level four, and you walk around, like there weren't a ton of people walking around from North America. In fact, there was nobody that I saw while we were there that was just like, I'm here to help, right? And, and together, right, we get to respond to things that other people ignore. And it's a gift, um, we also, if you'll believe this, um, I made a call just the day before we left uh, to our friends at the Houston Astros. You, you probably know that um, you know, our beloved Jose Altuve and Robinson Chirinos and so many other players are Venezuelan. And I just said, if you guys could send us with some gifts, that would be amazing. Um, they, um, they sent us, I got a few photos. They sent us with, um, I think we had 400 of these Astros jerseys with the Venezuelan flag on the side. Um, we had tons of Altuve shirts. Um, if you can believe it, they sent us with 300 World Series rings. Um, we, we were able to send the rings um, with some local pastors. So what's going to happen at Christmas, right, in Venezuela is that kids, aren't, they're not, they, they don't have anything. They can't, they're not going to get gifts at Christmas. And now the pastors are going to share with parents a World Series ring, and the kids are going to get an Astros World Series ring at Christmas, right? Just a, a little sign of joy and hope. I, I gotta tell you, Ecclesia, it's a really cool thing that we get to do that. That's a really beautiful thing. And I, I just wanna tell you that when we gather our tithes and offerings together, and it's one of the areas that we, we need some additional growth on the West Side, where together we just say, hey, we're gonna pool our resources because we can do more together than we can alone. We're a nonprofit. We're not sitting around going at the end of the year, right? Um, we, we're, we, what we get to do is if, as more comes in, we get to do more. So we didn't have it in the budget this year, but so far we've, we've, uh, we've been able to deliver more than $135,000 to help our friends at the Colombia-Venezuela border. We, we need to double that this year. There are just so many more needs from this last trip. And we get to do that when we pull, we pass those baskets and we're saying, we're in this together. We do something beautiful together. And I, I just gotta remind you, that's a gift. It's a beautiful gift. We get to be a part of small groups. You get to do things like the forgiveness event. Um, we get to do things where we become family. We're, we're taking a group again in February to the Holy Land. I, I, I just want to tell you, it's one of the most beautiful experiences you'll ever have in your life. And if you're free, the dates are February 6th to 15th. 
join us. But I got to tell you, as you participate in the church, it's not some humdrum thing where you're like, oh, this is such an obligation. I have to go to church. I got to be a part of this church. If you feel that way, then it, that's, a, that's a burden. Instead, I believe we get, it's such a joy. I hope you're like the little kid on the playground today that can just go, I love it when I get to go to church. Why? Because there's some people there that love me. They love God. I get refreshed. Lastly, and then we'll take communion. What do I do in light of this? This is what I'll invite you to do. Would you also consider opening your table? Some of us just been busy. Life's been busy. But I got to tell you, there's something to what we see in Jesus' activity in Luke 5. Just eating with people nobody else would eat with. Feasting with them. What's he say in that passage? There's a time for feasting. There's a time for fasting. What I'd tell you, Ecclesia, is that most um, Americans don't do either very well. We just consume. We consume enough calories to get through the day. I think we're made to fast, to have times we don't eat. Right? I, I like this whole intermittent fasting idea because it's like I'm going to not eat for a while so I can really eat when I eat. Right? I don't know if that's what it really means, but that's what I'm calling it, and I really like it. Right? And then... Right? Hopefully once a day I'm going to eat, eat, right? And it's going to be really good. But there is something about the sacredness of a table, sharing great food together. And we have this core belief. It's one of the reasons we go to the Holy Land and we eat with Palestinians and we eat with Jewish brothers and sisters. It's because we really believe we, we downtown, we eat with our homeless brothers and sisters at Paper Co. Cafe. You ought to go there and just eat with people in the middle of the week. We really believe it's impossible to hate people that you eat great food with. Some of you, you look fine to me, but if all of a sudden we're sitting down at a table and there's a filet and a glass of wine and some potatoes with cheese on it, you look amazing. You look so handsome. I had no idea you were that good looking just because the table changes. Our eyes see things differently. We see the best in one another when we share time at the table. And so why did Jesus sit with the bad people? Because he knew that's what we were made to do. So lastly, will you just think about ways you can open your table? Will you look for people? I got to tell you, uh, even in my life, my life's busy. But you go, hey, I'm, I'm making really good food this week. I do everything I can to get there. Probably your, my friends will tell you. I'll, I'm I, let me see what I can do because I'd like to be there. Because there's just something beautiful, something life-giving about sharing those experiences together. So my prayer is, as we go, we're going to take communion. We're going to feast at the Lord's table. He came and he feasted with us. He invited us to do the same. That some of the teaching today would just um, wash over you in a way that would be healing, instructive, and redemptive. Lord God, I thank you for this community of faith. I thank you that in our imperfections and brokenness that you choose still to use us. I thank you that you have called us out and you've offered us these beautiful teachings that we get to be a part of a church that is not surprised by Luke chapter five. We're not surprised that Peter was a sinful man and we're not surprised that Jesus didn't pull away from him. Lord, we're grateful that you use notorious sinners to love a profoundly broken world. And today, God, we ask you to bless this bread, that it would be a reminder to us that you have sent us into those same places, that you love us, that you know us. God, I ask you to bless this cup, 
that this wine and juice would be for us a reminder of your love and forgiveness for us. That we would learn to truly forgive and to walk in a way that we don't hold on to shame from our own failures. We pray today at this table that we would be reminded that you love us just the way that we are, that you meet us, and like Levi, who should have been a priest, and instead he was oppressing his own people, he was making big mistakes, that you come to us and say the same, would you follow me? And today, God, we pray that as we follow you, that we would find that same sense of hope and beauty and adventure. We pray all of this together. And we pray it in your name. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ecclesiahouston.org.